0: Well, hi, everybody. Welcome back to another Nature Chat. We haven't done one of these in forever, but we're glad you're here. Um, So hi, I'm Cheryl. We've also got Joe from the cast with us and our most recent special guest, Brian. Ta-da! Hi! Hey. Um, So to recap the story arc that Brian joined us for, uh, Brian played a myconid or a mushroom person character uh, named Gary, and Gary was a circle leader of a Myconid group and the circle's fungal farm had been raided by some unknown assailants, and Gary enlisted the help of the uh, core party adventurers to help them regain their fungus, uh, avenge the destruction of the farm, and figure out how to put the farm back to rights. Um, So that was a really cool storyline that Brian helped me develop, um, inspired by some science that we sort of touched on briefly during the game. But uh, today we're going to talk about uh, Brian's participation in the game and the science that inspired that storyline and Brian's research more broadly. Um, So... I know that you had never played D&D before you hopped on our game. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And you were playing kind of a complicated character. So I guess I'd just like to hear a little bit about like what you thought of uh, our game, of the game in general, of your experience.
1: Yeah. um, So this was my on on camera, streamed live, my first attempt at uh, D&D and I only had sort of a vague... Uh, feeling for what I would have to know about the characters there are a lot of abbreviations and things about like uh there's one called AC that it took me a really long time to like work out what you all were talking about and I was like oh it's this one on my card um but it's like uh, I I know (laughs) I got the um I got the um dice and I uh planned a nice little storyline with you and I was listening to um the characters sort of leading up to um, what was going on. So I had a pretty good understanding of like the dynamics, but it was still really interesting to see, you know, um, the, the bounds, or I guess the lack of bounds uh, to the game. Uh, and also, um, like you said, uh, the specific species of character uh, that I played, um, the myconid, uh, they can't talk, or at least they can't talk without sort of initiating Speaking. So yeah, uh, that was something that we knew would be challenging, and uh, y- you and I, Cheryl, we actually sort of planned how that would be challenging because nobody's just going to breathe in spores that are approaching them.
2: <laughs> so yeah. we kind of
1: figured that there would be a little bit of uh, reservations from the adventurers before we could actually communicate. And it was funny because I think there was like about like half an hour to an hour where uh, <laughs> where Nancy I... refused to talk to, to my character. Yeah. Same uh, even same. With everyone me. Else is like, he's fine, just it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah, but that was that was a lot of fun. And we worked it out, especially um uh when we were in combat and, and when we were near the um end, it, it worked out really nice and everyone was sort of uh playing along. Um and we added in uh, quite a few little wrinkles about Gary that uh link to real things with Uh, with Fungi, but um, made it a lot more interesting and actually allowed us to do things that sort of helped with our interpretation of the game. Um, We could talk about those things if if that's I think that falls into the purview of what we're doing here.
2: I think that
3: Gary was a fantastic character, not only in terms of personality, you know, trolling Cedric in the middle of the battle, but um, from from a combat perspective, you know, I think that the majority of your strategy was um, you know, completely non-lethal just sort of subduing and yeah all of that and that was that was really cool to see
1: so it was it was a lot of fun in that way too because um i realized and this was i don't think we discussed this in the game but something that bugged me was that uh the way that my conids attack is by slamming which is not realistically anything that mushrooms can do they don't <laughs> move that fast they yeah. don't have that kind of like weight to them usually yeah. so like when I was reading it I was like oh okay um granted they don't have arms and eyes either so yeah Yeah. mushroom person we, (laughs) we had talked about um about trying to incorporate some sort of like actual uh insect infecting process but in order to do that we would have had to change a lot of the dynamics with not only our foes but also how how gary would have worked so uh, we stayed away from that. But as, as somebody who works on insect killing fungi, I was like all about like, oh yeah, we can we can yeah. have it in this way. We can, you know, it'll be more realistic. <laughs> it was kind of nice, uh, like you said, to have uh, Gary's uh, strangely fingered hands uh, behind, their, behind their back because uh, playing it a little bit more passive, uh, that was really nice. Um, yeah. And it made it a little bit more difficult. It was much more of a puzzle than just like slaughtering all of these people um, I didn't actually realize until we were discussing it at the end, um that Gary and um Cindy's character uh are quite powerful compared to the adventurers. Mm-hmm. Um so in that sense, if, if I had ha- if I had, had like the ability to wield some sort of attack, it probably would have been a lot easier for us as well. So you yeah. know having a couple people dead on the ground is more exciting than just a mushroom coming in and rolling over everyone. <laughs> well,
3: I, I did I did offer you a... Uh, uh... An ass. <laughs> <Yes>. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which gary was not too happy about No,
0: no. <laughs> uh, but i, but I love that sort of flavor that the character took on and maybe it was partially because mm. you were new to this game and because that character had a lot of moving parts but i thought you really yeah. employed the arsenal of the different kinds of spores really nicely to tell a yeah. good story um yeah so i thought it was great
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah it was a lot of fun
3: and i think but- i think just by um you know virtue of the um you know the spores that gary had and you know what they used how he how they used them mm-hmm. um i think that that tells a really interesting story about uh my culture
1: itself yeah i'm pretty sure the only one that w- went unused was um hallucination yeah which the reason why it went unused and we did plan a spore color in case you know we wanted to use it um uh is that it resulted in attacking <laughs> like whoever hallucinated would like immediately attack someone next to them or like someone nearby and particularly when we were actually in combat i was like i don't want them attacking right now <laughs> yeah you, you did
0: actually deploy those once um oh. but it was oh, yeah. it, it affected one of the ambrosids the insect people that had already been affected by uh nadia's stinking cloud and oh, so yes. the, okay. even though it it uh it took the effect of the confusion spores and it should have mm-hmm. been attacking its neighbor. It couldn't because yeah. it was incapacitated. So like you did try, but I yeah, was in very those strategic. close quarters, it was just very yeah. difficult. Yeah. yeah,
1: That was well, the one that we, we at least didn't lean on as much. The other ones, even the distress we used uh, in an interesting way. There was a moment at the end, uh, Cheryl, when I used it and you were like, why are you, why are you using that? Or like, <laughs> what's going on? And I was like trying, but that was sort of the, the challenge with Gary is that, because they can't speak, you're trying to communicate all these different things with like how, uh, what color spores there are when they're released, or changing the color of the cap. Or um, probably one of the most fun ones, which for some reason really upset Peter, wh- was manipulating <laughs> your emotions. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which um, ended up being really useful. And there was a moment, uh, maybe about like halfway into the first uh, episode, where you all realized that you were feeling what Gary was feeling and it was kind of adorable. <laughs> what yeah. happened. So like, Why do we feel hungry? Like what's going on? And they're like, Oh, he's, they're hungry. And I yeah, like, oh, that's like, yeah. that's what we've been trying to tell you. <laughs> um, so that was a lot of fun too. And that's not something which is typically built in, but we figured that would be another way to communicate con- complex ideas and just to, to get that out there because, you know, uh, there's not a whole lot, uh, Of options, if you just play straight by the book. So, whatever we incorporated, we tried to tie it to at least something that that fungi do naturally. Um, Yeah. So, one uh, that to mycologists would would be very obvious, but maybe was lost on on, uh, people who aren't that familiar with mushrooms, is that um, one of the ways that you can identify, you know, without DNA or uh, looking through a microscope. Uh, different types of mushrooms is by taking a spore print, which is literally mm-hmm. just cutting off the cap and placing it on glass or, or paper um, and looking at the pattern and also the color of those spores. So we sort of co-opted that idea so that Gary could demonstrate uh, complex ideas or or events by sort of drawing them by pressing his or their cap to the ground and, um, and showing images. Uh, so that was another thing where like that gave us a lot of leeway uh, and we tried to tie it back to uh, real things that mycologists are at least a- are aware of.
3: Yeah, I didn't realize there was that much depth. But... Oh,
0: yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I like the way you phrased it just now, Brian, <laughs> if, if we played it straight by the book, I don't I don't think I know of anyone who plays D&D straight by the book, but that's yeah. because... <laughs> what's in the book is so minimal. Like you said, this is uh, a game that is all about storytelling and all about making it your own. And so, yeah, I was like, I want to put myconids in this world. Let me find a mycologist so that Mm -hmm. that person can build what the myconids are going to look like and what they're going to act like. And so, yeah, I I appreciate that you've sort of uh both during the game and during this chat uh sort of talked about how we uh fleshed out or added color to the myconid species um from the book to make it more realistic and more usable so that we could tell a good story yeah
1: did you joe did you have any questions about things that gary did or or like weird abilities like was, (laughs) was there anything where you like didn't expect it or it was like totally out of left field for you
3: I mean the entire character really, which I know is kind <laughs> of a bad answer, but um, answer? it's it's just so different from everything that anybody has you know played, mm-hmm. um, and it was also just more based on reality than you know most of the most of the other um, well any of the other characters
1: really. The thing that we added that I thought was probably most useful. And was not really leveraged as much as maybe it could have been, was the network, yes. where Gary connected. And this is something that's well well enough known that that probably everybody sort of had a vague idea of what was what was going on. Uh, but we came up with the idea pretty late, actually, that uh, Gary would be able to sort of extend into a mycelial network mm-hmm. and connect to fungi to gain information. Yeah. and this is something which sounds very like science fiction but is actually what's happening outside right now you know
3: oh yeah definitely um you know mushrooms not are too... able to
1: sense what's going on and also uh share direct resources uh, with one another yeah um, even the ones that I work on which are canonically thought about as um, insect pathogens they have a really interesting uh lifestyle underground uh interacting with plants and and moving nitrogen mm-hmm. from insect cadavers into Uh, plants. So that's something which, uh, you know, is going on underneath our feet all the time. And it was really cool to exploit that and to be able to sort of answer questions. And I think uh, Ryan at the end, he kind of like, was like, Oh, we should ask like some useful questions about like where to go (laughs) and and things like that. Um, But that was, that was an ability, which was very free form and, and very, um, very, Outside of the box, I think, uh, being able yeah. to do that and to look at that kind of information, and it must have been hard for you as the, um, the as the master to work out what i could know you know what i mean <laughs> like as soon as yeah. i plug in yeah like
0: well i mean that's that's where like i always let the dice decide when we're trying to do yeah. uh information gathering stuff specifically mm-hmm. like i have perfect knowledge of what's going on in the world around your characters mm-hmm. because i built it right yeah. so basically like how high you roll on the dice determines how much of my perfect knowledge i pass on to you and so yeah mm-hmm. that that was fun to sort of like you know, watch you plug in at various moments and be like, well, is Gary going to roll high enough for them to get any useful information? Or are yeah. they just going to kind of hit a, you know, hit a rock in the soil kind of thing. So mm-hmm. yeah, that was fun yeah. to, to estimate how much you would learn. Um, yeah.
3: yeah, Well, not, not too far from me there. You know, we have, um, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but we have like two of the largest organisms in the entire world. Um, one is a, this clonal, um, Basically, this clonal forest of aspens where each tree is connected underground essentially by its root systems, um, because that's how aspens reproduce. You know, they're all sterile, so mm. they just sort of um, asexually propagate. And um, so it's just one big tree. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, just one big tree. Um, just, yeah. And then uh, uh, feeding on those aspens um, as a pathogen and as a decomposer is Mm. a giant fungal network that is all connected. Um, So we have these real life, um, you know, parallels to uh, uh, what Gary did with that fungal network, you know, with both these plants and
1: this fungus. Yeah. If you want to look that up, I think the sort of catchy name for it is the humongous fungus. Yeah. Um, And (laughs) uh, one of of my favorite things about it is um, uh, you know, aside from genetics sort of telling us that it's it's one enormous organism, uh, another sign is that it will fruit at the same time across mm-hmm. this really large area. Oh. So you can kind of see it synchronized because it's one thing, which, you know, across miles, that's a pretty, pretty amazing uh, little trick of biology. So cool. yeah, guess right. large trick of biology.
0: <laughs> um, yeah. So we talked a lot about the sort of uh, mechanics of Gary, what was already in the book and what we added. Mm -hmm. Um, But I guess I was there as you were learning how to operate the character, but I didn't Mm -hmm. necessarily, I don't think hear a whole lot of your thought process behind developing their personality and stuff. So like, could you tell us a little bit more about like how you conceived of Gary the individual?
1: Yeah, um, I think that uh, one of the things that I was I was reading uh, was that and I think, you know, this was maybe just an afterthought, but they're just listed as uh, lawful neutral, I think is the the alignment for them. Mm-hmm. So they don't really weigh in on things and they're mostly supposed to be like uh, very sort of straight laced and, and keep to themselves and like not do things. But sort of by definition, because this character was running off and leaving, I thought that uh, Gary had to deviate from, from that standard. And obviously, the adventurers were helping them. So it couldn't be some sort of evil character. So I, I figured that the best way to kind of do that was to have a little bit of a devious side. And and because it's Gary was such a strange... Uh, being, just in, in abilities and, and what was possible, I thought that it would be fun to play around and to be a little bit, you know, unpredictable because like, there was that moment when, that, that you mentioned already, Joe, where uh, Gary touched a wound <laughs> and then the next the next round they were like, so my wound's healed, right? And you're we like, no. <laughs> but it's like that sort of thing of, of like, what are they able to do? And, and what's next? I thought that that was a really, um, could, could be done in a playful way. And I tried to tried to do that, um, particularly when meeting them, uh, and sort of like, stunning people to, <laughs> uh, to, like, rebuke and, and stuff like that. But uh, I, I felt that it was necessary to move off of that alignment, at least a little bit, just because, it was yeah. already weird enough that they were going off on their own. So it had to kind of line up with that sort of adventurous personality. And um, you know, uh I, I think that it I think it came together really well. And I, I didn't think through too many of like the little things, but when there were opportunities I was like, Well, I have to take this or, or try this. And uh it was it was a lot of fun and it certainly uh kept things interesting for, for the adventurers.
3: Oh, definitely.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, I loved the fact that even though um I I guess I-, I told the players this that like I always give the guests the option when we're sort of beginning the idea of them being guess- a guest on the show that they could be a helper or they could be an antagonist and mm-hmm. even though gary is technically classified as a helper character because they yeah. weren't outright antagonistic to the player characters mm-hmm. like they still weren't just like oh hi here's everything you need on a silver platter right yeah. and i loved that idea of just like mm-hmm. messing with them while while yeah. you get them to help you get what you want before you give them exactly. what they want yeah
1: yeah, yeah. Well, and there's a certain like there's a certain manipulation to that which is like similar to the idea of gary being able to induce emotions in in the adventurers that they would not have or when there was an argument and they're like well should we go in like i don't know and then all of a sudden it's like you all feel confident and like you should go in and then that like (laughs) to the next thing um so so that in itself is kind of like it it, it's the same uh character in the same place and uh i tried to carry that through true kind of like once gary was defined i I tried to carry it through even to the end so like when i when gary was reunited with the circle members he was like yeah they're not that good at fighting but they managed to get our (laughs) feedback (laughs) and it's like that stuff like even though the adventurers weren't listening to that conversation it was still fun to sort of carry that sort of gary personality through to to the very end of of that interaction um he and it was wrong. i think endearing yeah <laughs> 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 two two three people on the side yeah yeah we were yeah. we
3: were literally one he- we were literally like one heal spell away from yeah. a tpk <gasps>
0: So how did both of you feel about that? I guess Lucanus is one of the more, at least at this stage of the game as level two characters, Lucanus is one of the more powerful characters in the party in terms of ability to hit in combat and also HP. Um, And Brian, this was your first time playing. Uh, So how did both of you feel in that combat? That was the closest we've been on the line of losing someone yet.
1: I was yeah. kind of aware that that was some of the most dire straits the adventurers had been in. Um, and I felt particularly bad because I posted on Twitter that I didn't really know what I was doing. And then I, I had a joking, <laughs> I had a joking GIF that I posted and it was like, some of you may die. <laughs> and then we end the episode and two people are like dying on the ground. and I was like, Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> Ruined the game. Uh, so, uh, I was very happy that we managed to turn things around pretty early in the
2: next
1: next episode when I realized sort of how I could use a ray to pacify and then it would only take me a couple of rolls to like stabilize the situation uh in in like at least a combat way I was like okay (laughs) I can at least (laughs) contribute um and that did kind of uh turn the tides and especially you know you can't even plan uh what happened at the end with Fletcher waking up and <laughs> knocking the head off? <laughs>
2: that, was off. Awesome. <laughs> that, yeah. um,
3: that was awesome. That was so I, perfect. I, I
1: felt I felt a little bad, especially in the transition and uh, and then uh, sort of joking about that happening and then it coming up. I was like, oh no, I did this.
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, I was I was watching my hit points creep down, and you know, Lucanus. He, um, I knew that like at one point, it's like okay, he can take one hit and um yeah i'm looking at my notes right now i ended up with like 8 hp and then i this was the first time where i actually had to start adding my temporary hit points in there from your, and then i ended up like that one you know there was this one time when cheryl was like are you gonna be okay and i'm like well (laughs) we will fucking see (laughs) uh because that hit me for six points, and I had like two total points. Yeah, so
1: it was close. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was. It was.
3: It was close.
0: You, um, haven't, you haven't gone unconscious yet, have you?
1: I have not. Oh, I felt really <laughs> bad for Ryan, who yeah. obviously he had that moment, but, like, the first hour of episode two, he's just, like, on the ground bleeding. <laughs> I yeah. Like, yeah, I, uh,
0: Ryan, <laughs> is, Ryan has played D&D before, and I uh, certainly don't want to speak for him, but I feel like from things he said that he kind of knew what he was getting into, wizards yeah. start out like glass cannons, um, but yeah. by the time the players reach level 18, 19, 20, um. like, the wizard is almost unstoppable. Um, sure. yeah. yeah it's just that you know things start out kind of squishy but yeah
3: <laughs> yeah well speaking speaking for lucanus like lucanus is probably one of the more cautious barbarians that are on <laughs> D. um and the reason for that is just because he He has this kind of weird history that we're going to get into, and he's not really sure how much he wants to Mm -hmm. risk himself for other people because he's been hurt pretty badly in the past. So he's like, okay, I'm getting paid to protect you guys, but um, I'm not going to be stupid about it. Yeah.
0: Um, I appreciate he's... your reluctance to be a murder hobo. That is a nice. Thing. <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's. Um, well, I also when I when I started playing the character, and I don't mm-hmm. want to get too much in on this because <laughs> this is not my nature chat, but mm-hmm. um, you know, I wanted to do something that was just really, really different than what most D and D, than how most D and D characters play it so Mm -hmm. i actually chose something that would have um a sort of almost i don't want to say a bizarre list of traits but a list of traits that are useful like if you would have tried to put lucanus to sleep like if we would have gotten Mm -hmm. into a fight that wouldn't work Mm -hmm. because lucanus has some weird resistances against psychics and stuff like that for being an elf um that was and... actually
1: a hitch at the beginning was because I had this plan to ambush you. And because you watch and you are impervious to the spores, mm-hmm. I can pass it yeah. you and then appear. So we tried to work around that and it did not go well. <laughs> 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 Yeah, but what did I, are think the, I like, what... missed the first time? And somebody poked me. Or poked yeah, one of my circle members. But yeah,
3: well, one of the other things that I I eventually want to do with Lucanus, um, which is actually very much in the same line as Gary in a very mm-hmm. um, different way, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say um, what it is, but mm-hmm. I kind of want to give him some abilities that um, other team members have to help him out with. Sure. Like there's this book called The Ables, which was written uh, by the um, guy who does Cinema Sins, which is one okay. of my favorite YouTube channels, one of my favorite um, podcasts. So shout out mm-hmm. to Jeremy and the crew. But um, essentially, what this book is is it's about disabled superheroes who mm-hmm. need their team members to help them use their superpowers. And one of the one of I my favorite that. examples is this guy who's telekinetic who's blind. Mm -hmm. So like they can lift things with their minds, but they can't really see where to go without where Mm -hmm. to put it without someone's help. And I really like that concept. And um, with Gary, Mm -hmm. uh, we have the situation where he can walk in there and pacify things, but Mm -hmm. he's not going to be able to, you know, go in there and um, clear the burrow. That's Uh, so true. And I, I really, really like that idea that philosophy because it's something that um i'm kind of sort of trying to plan with my character <laughs> yeah um what we so... like synergy
0: and DD parties what yeah. <laughs> yeah
3: so i just thought it was um for from joe's perspective i thought it was really interesting that somebody had very much the same idea that i had with my character mm-hmm. but they executed it completely differently yeah um
1: yeah well and and there's also the aspect of the history and you being you having this relationship and building that that community with with these adventurers and then gary is just showing up (laughs) and trying to do similar (laughs) things but nobody really knows them you know yeah Um, so that that too uh changes things a little bit but uh, that is a really interesting um interesting parallel for sure Um, yeah and something that you know uh you can you can do intentionally or it it can come together sort of just by the nature of of who your your character is which i think is much more what happened with with gary um yeah so that was really cool
3: well yeah and i there was definitely some antagonism between like lucanus and gary like lucanus was trying to be like super super nice and then he ended up riding gary into
0: battle I mean, yep. Whatever works.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it it worked. Mm-hmm. So um,
0: the
1: other thing that I thought was hysterical was um the fact that after this entire epic battle, Kay was unscathed and actually <laughs> inflicted damage on one of the <laughs> <laughs> That was really funny to me, and yeah. I was like, personality really matters when you're down here in the, the barrel <laughs> Totally.
0: Yep. Yeah. Yep. Very much so. I think that's. uh I don't know. I have many favorite things about uh, oh. Nature Ch- nature Check and specifically the Arta campaign, but like mm-hmm. everyone's commitment to role-playing their characters just yeah. blows me away every time. Yeah. Um, so I like continually will rail against this idea that, like, people think that scientists are all stiff and don't have sense of humor and aren't good storytellers. Like, every scientist I know, maybe I'm only friends with the ones who are good at telling stories, Mm -hmm. but I know so many scientists who are good at telling stories and who are good at acting and portraying characters and really sticking to the character. And that I just, I love that. And that's why I think it's so important we do this because it shows people that that is true. (laughs) Mm
2: -hmm. Well,
3: so here's the thing, like one of my, and this is just because I've hung around a lot of PR people in the past, but um, one of the things that I always warn people about is one of the ways in which you can tell that somebody has never had any contact with scientists like whatsoever is the phrase scientists can't tell stories because Mm -hmm we literally have scientific conferences where people will fly thousands of miles to sit in a room (laughs) in a circle and hear stories about science. And I don't care how good of a public relations person, I don't care how charismatic they are. Mm -hmm. I have never heard a PR person tell a story about science that is worth flying three thousand miles for (laughs) (laughs) well um it may all be just
0: experience because i've sat in plenty of rooms at conferences and heard people who aren't good storytellers but i mean yeah to to make the blanket statement i guess i'm thinking of a very particular person who has gotten famous and written several books and this is as far as this hot take is going because i don't want to Mm -hmm. get dogpiled on but like that person has a habit of and in fact wrote a whole book saying that scientists aren't good storytellers and Mm -hmm. like i Mm -hmm. adamantly refuse to accept that as a truth, because I know so many yeah. scientists who are naturally good storytellers. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. and, and I mean,
1: and, and we're seeing it in this campaign, you know. Yeah. And it was interesting too for me because, uh, just from being an entomologist as well, I I have I knew almost everyone in the campaign personally from yeah. I you know actually working with them or uh, seeing people at conferences. And it was interesting to interact with them as their characters, (laughs) not as the person, because I know for sure there were decisions that were made, which is going back to your sort of like commitment that they would not have made themselves, but the character they felt would have done that thing. And they they chose that decision instead as part of the story, which was really impressive to me to see that kind of dedication. And obviously you all have been at this for a while, so you've got your fingers on the pulse of your characters, but... Yeah, uh, that, that was really interesting to me to see, um, particularly knowing most most people in the game.
0: Do You think Nancy oh, yeah. wouldn't shoot Peter in the back in real life?
1: <laughs> I mean, that was not one of those
3: <laughs> I mean, I would. I think. I think. I think Nancy would shoot Cedric in, in real life. I <laughs> well, think that she not would. Not Cedric. I
0: think, would she shoot Peter?
3: <laughs> uh, I don't think she'd shoot Peter. But if Cedric, if Cedric were re- were real, I oh. feel like he would get a. a frying pan at some point yeah yeah uh
0: Uh, uh, interesting uh dichotomy of character versus player that i know we Mm -hmm. said we wanted to talk about let's talk about gary's pronouns i know Ah, um if anyone listened to the two episodes that gary was in and even listening to this chat um let's talk about gary's pronouns and the decision behind how their pronouns came to be
1: yeah um so particularly since i had not gone into dnd before this was a discussion that we had formally uh which was that we could decide that and um as gary i think in the email i said as like a humble representative of <laughs> mushrooms it made the most sense uh to me that gary would not choose uh he him or uh she her because uh it's just not a concept that would translate over to fungi um that's that's sort of an idea of you know that binary sexuality that binary um difference which fungi do not recognize and and the way that um (laughs) the way that their biology works is just so far outside that we were like (laughs) it has to it has to flout that we have to uh switch those pronouns and it probably because uh of the name and also the fact that my pronouns are he, him, and everyone knows mm. me. It was something that uh, we struggled with, you know, even uh, up and through here, we're sort of correcting ourselves a little. Um, but I think that everyone approached it in a way that was very respectful and, and intentional. And um, it yeah. was good to, uh, to uh, do that. And it was also interesting for me role-playing as not my personal pronouns. Um, so that was, I think a really good thing to do. And um, I think that it reflected uh, who, who Gary is, uh, much better than, uh, if I had just sort of lazily chosen my own. So I was really glad that, uh, we had that discussion and, and that we could do that. Um, yeah, I don't know if you have any, anything else to add or, or your experience with well, the Well, I mean,
3: just, just explain, you know, um, how, just how mating and fungi works, yeah. because I know, I know enough, of, I know a some about this but um i'm sure you know more than me but it's not it's not anything that we would even recognize no. as, as sex
1: yeah so we have um we have gametes and it's like these they're two very different uh sexual cells that have to fuse and have to form a zygote and um fungi particularly the ones that i have worked on uh they are ready to reproduce without sex they will reproduce asexually. Um, And that is just formed through mitosis. It's called a mitospore or a conidia, and the the fungi that I work with. Um, And that is really the only way um, that these uh, species are reproducing. So just right there, that's completely been clouded. Um, If you are reproducing sexually, uh, you'll produce some sort of fruiting structure, which we actually went into this a little bit talking about uh, zombie ants Mm -hmm. uh, in, in the game um but uh for that um there are really two types uh and this gets very complicated and very confusing even for me as somebody who who works in the field uh but basically uh these are genes which uh determine mating types and uh for uh some fungi we call them heterothalic they only have one type and they need a partner that has the other type in, in order to sort of sexually uh recombine and then Those cells, um, they go through a process where first the um, cytoplasms fuse. So you have to have uh, the mating type is sort of like a, almost like a pheromone, which allows them to sort of tell this is a different mating type and then they'll fuse. And then they have to have more genes, uh, which are sort of vegetative that allow that fusion. Uh, And then uh, the nuclei will fuse and then they can go through meiosis sort of in a way that we would be familiar with. Uh, not working on fungi. Um, But in order for that to happen, uh, for the heterothalic ones, they have just one and they need their partner. And then there are others, which will reproduce sexually and and go through meiosis, but they already have both types. And we call those um, homothalic. Uh, So it's, it's totally different. It, It does not fit into any sort of binary. And even within a single genus of fungi, you can have multiple different uh, ways of reproducing, and then a single fungus, depending on the environment and, and the situation that it's in, could either go through asexual reproduction or go through uh, sexual reproduction. And what I'm describing here, as complicated as it already sounds, that's sort of just the like foundation of it. Many yeah. fungi will go through multiple different cycles that require uh, different hosts to form different spore types. Uh, yeah. So it, it gets very complex and, and just simply does not fall into any kind of meaningful binary and even the terms that we have for it, uh, you have to be really into the weeds with mating and fungi to have a full grasp of it. And even for me as a mycologist for quite some time now, um, it's not something that I uh, think about too often or, uh, you know, would uh, want to go up and give a talk or a lecture about necessarily.
2: <laughs> yeah,
3: well... You know the the whole sexual versus asexual thing and mm-hmm. fungi i know that that's cause um we'll just say fun with the taxonomy
1: yeah yeah uh, you so wanna... <laughs> so my um the the fungi that that i did my phd on um metarizium species uh they are um and we talked about this before but they're anamorphic so they do not produce those fruiting bodies mm-hmm. and uh you know back before we had dna the way that you would identify these different species was based on the fruiting bodies. So, for a long time, we thought the anamorphs were different from the teleomorphs. And maybe the spores are similar, but like if there's no fruiting body, we could be like, that's the one that has those spores with no fruiting body. And this is the one that has the spores with the fruiting body. Very different, obviously, because of this conspicuous fruiting body. And only recently have a lot of them, we realized, oh, this is the anamorph of this species. And they're actually. Uh, the same or they're actually much more closely related than we thought that they were. Um, so that's something where, you know, even if you are really heavy into a field, keeping track of which names are appropriate and also reading literature from say like 10 years ago and knowing what fungus you're talking about, you have to be really a specialist (laughs) to, to be able to work that out. Um, so just as an example for, uh, the fungi that I'm, that I worked on that uh, that genus, um, and this doesn't have too much to do with the sexual structures, but it has to do with the fact that they do not have them. So it's hard to distinguish them from just the hypha and the spores. Um, they were called, for most of, most of you know, hundreds of years that they've been or worked with, they were really grouped into a couple of categories, which was uh, Metarizium anisoplia, which is named after a, a wheat-chafer beetle that they were first isolated from. Uh, Metarizium magus, because the spores were so long that we could tell that it was a different uh, species. And then Metaresium acritum because it was highly specialized to locusts. Um, and those were really the ones that, that you see in literature for the vast majority of, of us mm-hmm. studying them. And only just in the last, I don't know, 20 years, did we start dividing Anisoplia into its actual species and saying, oh, these are different. And these have mm-hmm. evolutionary differences that we can track. And uh, they are unique clonal individuals. And now we have, uh, you know, Uh, ones that are commonly used, uh, 10 plus uh, species uh, that are part of this complex. But if you read literature from 20 years ago, it'll just say Anisoplia. And you have no idea if it's sensu stricto or if it's uh, another species that just was not defined at that time. So it it makes a challenge uh, for uh, fungi taxonomically. And there are a lot of really intense discussions, which I stay very far away from, about how to name them, and who gets to be which genus and, and which species. And the idea, um, at least in the fungal world, is to have uh, uh, one name for one fungus, which sounds intuitive, but we do not have that right, right now.
2: Well,
3: I mean, it sounds intuitive, but it's not really all that different than the um, situation uh, with weeds. So, yep. you know, the dandelions you have in your yard, um they're kind of a side effect of a rather interesting kind of like genetic warfare thing that's going on with dandelions in the wild. So, there's like and I might have explained this at some point on Nature Check, I'd be surprised if I hadn't, you but did. like yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just basically there's these diploids that um just sort of keep everything in check by making another population just produce these um, triploids that we actually have in America. Mm. And these things are so common that at some point one seed like accidentally hitchh- hitchhiked over here. Hitchhoke? I don't know what the. I don't know what the.
0: Hiked is the past best tense tits. of hike, so it would be hitchhiked. Yes. <laughs> okay.
3: Uh, I like hickok folk better for some,
1: for some reason.
3: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, like but anyways,
0: Meese instead of mice. Um, yeah,
3: <laughs> one of them. One of them got over here accidentally, and mm-hmm. just basically, you know, genetically speaking, all the dandelions you see in your yard are just mm-hmm. sort of like shrapnel from this random genetic war. Yeah. So you know, just looking at that from a species context there's literally no way to separate dandelions into distinct species because Mm. there's so many different um, ploidy variants. Mm. And technically they all interbreed, but the reason they interbreed is because different populations, and I'm gonna anthropomorphize here, but different Mm. populations are trying to keep the others in check. So the different ploidy levels end up interfering with the reproduction And they use those different ploidy levels almost kind of sort of like a weapon against the others so you can't really you know just like the fungi you're describing you Mm -hmm. can't like there are some times when species definitions are impossible
0: Um, <laughs> and while we're talking about um, yeah. confusing, complicated reproduction, um, Brian, you were talking about mating types and fungi before, and I've mm-hmm. only taken a mycology class, and yes, there was a lot of really complicated and confusing vocabulary, but mm-hmm. I, I feel like the impression I got at the end of that class was that there are, like, more than two mating types yes. as well so like oh, that's yes. another yeah. reason why the yeah. bi- why the binary um like gender pronouns wouldn't work in gary's case because we'd need yep. like 14 different pronouns or something right yeah,
1: yeah. Four- 14 is is an underestimation I mean, within a <laughs> species you're probably looking at like a few but like if you look at across the entire kingdom of fungi uh, you know, it's, it's all over the place. Uh, what, what different mating types are available. There are examples of mating types that have fused and thus have sort of become their own uh, different thing. And um, uh, they are also unfortunately numbered MAT number dash number dash number which becomes very complicated <laughs> not very, <sexy>. very quickly <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you're like wait uh, is it one two one or two one uh, uh? Um, yeah. so yeah it's it's it just does not fit into into those bounds at all um and it's something that uh you know uh I've written a couple of papers sort of addressing uh mating head-on but I've been lucky because the the fungus that I worked uh, I've worked on the most metarisium uh, they're clonal so they're not doing any of that stuff anyway and they're also uh primarily haploid so uh we don't have to worry about most of those details and when we do look um uh it's not and it, there doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence that they've done that in the last few million years so yeah and uh, just you. to
0: <laughs> just to uh clarify again Mm -hmm. um while we have no idea who's listening um haploid again means that they have one copy of each gene or of each chromosome or whatever so again that makes sense if they're clonal like they're literally just copying the genetics from themselves to their offspring so they don't have this weird like mixing of like two different parental contributions of genes or something like that
1: so let's so one one thing about about that is that this this is sort of a division of of your lifestyle where you either are mating and you're reproducing sexually, and the major advantage to sexual reproduction uh, is variation. It introduces variation, um, and there's there's a crossing over that happens, and there's you know which there's a flip of the coin and which which genes you're going to get, and and that changes sort of who you are. When you're clonal, sort of as the name clone uh, implies, <laughs> it's the same. So the sources of variation, when you have made that sort of lifestyle choice to become clonal and not reproduce uh, through uh, mating, shift. And it changes your biology pretty dramatically. And you have to get really creative. And of course, I'm anthropomorphizing anthropomorphizing like crazy right now. (laughs) You have to get really creative to get variation. And that changes the biology of the organism that you're looking at. And at least in the case of a lot of fungi, that source of variation shifts from uh, the mating and the, the sorts of things which can result in, in high levels of specialization to uh, proliferation of transposons, which can introduce variants of genes and, and duplicate genes and allow you to do different things. So, so that shift actually dramatically changes what what is possible and also what you see with these yeah. Fungi. So that's why, for example, there are a lot of generalists in in the genus Metarisium that I, that I've worked on. But when you're looking at Ophiocordyceps that are infecting ants that are highly, highly specialized to their ant species, uh, they are going to reproduce sexually and they produce these sexual spores um, because they're specializing in sort of almost fine tuning to their host. Yeah. Um, so it's not just a you know a quirk; it's something that that will dramatically shift the path of, of evolution for these. Uh, fungi we call it the the trajectory of their evolution yeah <laughs> and instead no. of that
0: um anthropomorphizing no. of saying when you choose you're uh, basically saying that it, it is beneficial in the fungus's current environment when it was yeah. evolving to do one mm. or the other um but yeah. uh the variation that's added through sexual uh reproduction like you said is the variation from the parents but uh mm. when you're doing asexual reproduction uh, uh can you explain more about the variation and what are transposons and how does that work
1: yeah so uh transposons um are these these repetitive elements which will sort of copy and paste through the genome of uh organisms so um it's it's something which is kind of like a genomic parasite and we have lots of these we have all different kinds there are uh transposons uh that will copy and paste through dna there are retrotransposons which will copy and paste through other mechanisms and there are all these different kinds um but uh when you are not reproducing uh and this is a phenomenon which is which is known really well in uh fungi um which is there's sort of a defense mechanism against uh these repetitive elements uh and what happens is when meiosis is occurring so while sexual reproduction is occurring the fungus will go through and look for repetitive regions of DNA and change them, thus sort of disabling these transposons that can hop around the genome during reproduction. And if you're not doing that sort of quality check by mating, then these can run rampant. So a lot of insect pathogens, um, their genomes have inflated to, this, to the extent that it's ridiculous, where um, you're looking at uh, you know, hundreds of millions of base pairs uh, compared to like a typical fungal genome anywhere from like 20 to 40 uh, megabases um, and that can can really change uh, the how easy it is to work with them because instead of looking at a sequence that you could really easily download on your computer and, and work with, you you're trying to sequence something and two three days later it's still sequencing and oh. you're like why is this why is this so long? what's going on with this And a lot of that um, is it's increasingly clear that it's these, repetitive sort of selfish DNA elements that are uh, copying and pasting themselves through the genome. And they can be advantageous to the fungus by giving them new abilities and copying genes that are good, but they can also create sort of an unwieldy um, genome that can can also shift the lifestyle. So in that sense, by, by copying and pasting and moving around the genome, they can either carry genes or they can break genes or they can move regions that change how genes are expressed. And and that can have a, a really huge impact on, on what that fungus is able to do. To give, um, but it is um, variation, and if you can't get variation, then uh, that's that's one way you can you can do that.
3: Yeah, um, to give the listeners just a kind of, I had to look this up myself, um, but to give the listeners just some some sort of comparison um, of the genome size that Brian was talking about um, for uh, haploid genome, so like one of our gametes. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, uh, genome size is uh, 3,100 megabase pairs, so um, you know, like 3.1 billion bases, uh, and then each one of our cells uh, has double that. So and a base um,
0: pair is the like A C T G.
3: Yeah. From
0: high school biology. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
3: yeah. And then our you know each one of our cells has a uh, uh, sixty um, 6, two hundred million base pairs so mm-hmm. you know we're talking we're talking many 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 times the size of um the human genome
1: yeah big numbers yep. and these <laughs> yeah. these these fungi particularly on um, the insect destroying fun fungi which we call Entomothora, which just is latin for insect destroyer yeah um <laughs> those uh uh you know it's the number is changing all the time but they have among the largest genomes that have ever been sequenced and mm-hmm. part of that is that that highly repetitive sort of enormous uh uh genome uh that they have so uh it's it's a really interesting uh aspect of biology and we're in the lab that I'm working in now we're working with uh a um fungus which is in that group called massospora and it looks like as we're trying to sequence it now it indeed has one of those enormous genomes that we're going to have to uh, to try to um, uh, make sense of uh, once it once it makes it out of the sequencer, so um, yeah. this is this is a challenge to uh, moving the field forward, and the inflation is is actually in and of itself a characteristic that tells us something about the evolution of these highly highly specialized uh, insect pathogens. Yep.
0: Huh. Um, so we're getting close to the end of our chat time mm-hmm. here. Um, so I guess I wanted to hear from Brian. Is there anything else that you want people to know about, like, you and the research you do?
1: Um, so we haven't talked about my uh, current fascination at all. So we could talk a little <laughs> bit about Massospora, who I just... Uh, yeah. I just... I just mentioned cicada Um, butt fungus yeah so this is (laughs) this is the cicada butt fungus yes um and it uh it can affect it it, it can infect annual and periodical cicadas um but mostly we've been studying it in periodical cicadas and this is a fungus which uh (laughs) there are a lot of gaps in our understanding of it and part of that is because you can't culture cicadas in the lab And then in order to sample them or to look at them, you have to wait 13 to 17 years (laughs) to uh, have your next sample emerge. Um, So uh, there have been a few uh, studies trying to characterize it. And there's sort of an initial description of it, the um, sort of landmark uh, description of the biology of it by um, a mycologist named Soper. Um, But uh, there are a lot of unknowns with it. Um, so we actually just just recently published a um, Plus Pathogens Pearl, which is a, um, a really cool article format where instead of uh, just writing like a primary research article, it's more of a synthesis of an interesting topic written in a way that would be um, sort of the way that they describe it is that it would be it would be useful for a class if people didn't know the topic, but wanted a primer on on what's known about it and and sort of to to gain their interest on it. But it has to be written in a way that's accessible to someone who's not in the field. Um, so, you know, being able to write that and being able to explore the topic like that was a was a really interesting opportunity, but it also gave us the ability to sort of do a lot of reading on, okay, what is known about this? What do we still want to know about this? What are the open questions about this? Um, and we developed a, a lifestyle, um, we developed a, a life cycle diagram. And through that diagram, we kind of have sprinkled in question marks where we're like, well, maybe this is happening, or maybe this would be, uh, maybe <laughs> yeah. this would be a way that this would work, but nobody's looked at this yet. And we, we try to be really honest with like, what we don't know, because a lot of science is like, we did this, and this is what's happening. But really, particularly with a system that's so obscure like this, we don't know a lot of, of the dynamics. Um, but our, our basic understanding of it is that this fungus waits for the cicadas to emerge in the soil. And when the cicada nymphs have gone through their sap cycles, because they're underground uh, on the roots of trees sort of counting each year when the sap is moving in and out of the roots. Um, and when they get to their 17th year, they'll climb up to the surface. And at that point, Uh, the nymphs are exposed to these spores that have been waiting for them since the last generation. That spore will infect the nymph and then the nymph will emerge infected with this fungus and a couple of weeks after that the um, cicada looks completely normal but then uh, the fungus starts to proliferate on the back of the cicada and sort of expand. and the reason why this fungus is called massospora is because the entire back of the cicada turns into a mass of spores. Yeah. Very creative. (laughs) Um, So for this, um, what happens is it expands and essentially the cicada sloughs off its abdominal segments as like rings, revealing this fungus. Um, And the way that I've described it is, it's kind of like an eraser, which is as this cicada, which is still alive, is crawling around and trying to mate with other cicadas it's rubbing these infective spores off on surfaces and on other cicadas. Um, One really interesting aspect of this stage is that it manipulates the cicada. Uh, So when a male cicada is infected, the male cicada with this plug of fungus on the back of it will act as if it's a female cicada and will actively court male cicadas. And the interesting thing about that manipulation is that it essentially doubles the number of cicadas that could come into contact with this fungus. Um, So this is a manipulation of the insect host, which is directly benefiting the pathogen. And since the fungus essentially castrates the cicada, it in no way benefits the cicada. Um, So doing this kind of manipulation while the host is alive, that was the topic that we wrote this on, which is called active host transmission, which is essentially using your host as a vehicle to deliver these these fungal spores. Um, so that was a really cool thing to dig into. And there are other examples of fungi doing this in other systems. Um and and how that works and, and how that evolves is is really poorly understood. And you really need like conspicuous examples and a really firm understanding of of insect behavior to be able to identify when not only a manipulation is occurring, but when it's something that wouldn't naturally happen with the inside so this this mating manipulation the only way that it was discovered was through cicada biologists who had been working with cicadas for decades and would know that this wing flicking behavior is not something that male cicadas would typically do so there are probably many more examples out there um but this is just one that we can look at once every 13 to 17 years
3: so you guys want to hear something a funny story, and this has nothing to do with the conversation, but a funny story about me and Massospora. Uh-oh.
2: Yeah, sure. Oh, oh, no. When when I was an undergrad, when I was
3: an mm-hmm. undergrad and I first heard about this fungus, I misheard mm-hmm. my instructor mention it and thought it was called Asaspora. <laughs> and for like two years, I was like, that OK, was sure. And nobody ever corrected me because they thought I was saying Massaspora. which, by the way, each name makes sense.
2: Sure. Um,
3: But no, uh, the uh, mating behavior thing, I think, is really interesting because Mm -hmm. in Drosophila, there's this gene um, called fruitless, um, which uh, does that same thing. But um, it's expressed very early in the development. In fact, it's Mm -hmm. one of the one of the genes um, that tells the um, critter whether it's going to be a boy or a girl. Mm -hmm. Um, because sex is complicated and yes (laughs) it is indeed a spectrum it is your chromosomes are not magic there are genetics involved and um the thing that is really interesting to me about that is Mm -hmm. that for lack of a better phrase um it changes the it changes the cicadas sexual orientation after development yeah and um that seems like it would be Very difficult to do um, because that whole fruitless thing, um, Mm -hmm. you know, as I said, that happens very early. It sort of sets the base conditions. So the Mm -hmm. fact that something can come along later and um, change that is uh, really quite something.
1: Well, the thing that is is complicated is that we know that it happens, and it's sort of a it's a response because there's this is courtship between between the different sexes, but we don't know how it's occurring yet. And this is something yeah. that is, is actively under investigation. Um, there's probably some sort of really serious uh, shift in the internal chemistry and, and the hormones of the cicada mm-hmm. in order to enact this shift, which only benefits the, the, the pathogen. There's no yeah. benefit to this, this poor uh, you know, cicada, which has turned into effectively a puppet of this, of this fungus. They must uh, be to this so happening confused.
2: <laughs> um, but one thing that
1: they one thing that they uh discovered in, in the lab that i'm working in now um here at west virginia is um that these uh pathogens are when they're present uh, they can find uh bioactive uh alkaloids at really high levels in the cicadas mm-hmm. um so they found uh the um sorry would bioactive uh, alkaloids
0: be like hormones
1: like amphetamines like something which uh we have not shown but are hypothesizing would keep the cicadas awake and infecting for longer and maybe make them a little bit less annoyed that their entire abdomen is missing um and
0: uh, i'd be annoyed
1: if you were high um, on meth you wouldn't be uh, yeah they're (laughs) they're also producing um uh different species are producing um uh psilocybin the magic mushroom compound um so why this is being produced and and how this has evolved these are things that um you know were very unexpected and there's a there's a great story from from my pi where they were in the lab and they were looking at what these compounds are and they realized that they have this like heavily controlled drug in their freezer (laughs) just like <laughs> presents and all these cicadas and they Oops. had to call the D DE- they had to call the DEA and be like, we're really sorry. Like we had no idea. Yeah. Uh, they had to write a, um, they had to write a sort of memo saying like they didn't know that this is going to happen and they're not trying to concentrate it or sell it. So it should be fine. Yeah. Uh, but it's something where, you know, once, once you stumble upon that, uh, it, it changes how you can do that research and mm-hmm. also changes your understanding of, of how, this manipulation is occurring, how you can uh, basically fully disfigure a cicada and still have it walking around and and looking like a suitable mate. Um, I haven't seen it personally, but in some of the field collections, they find uh, cicadas trying to mate with these infected like bright yellow abdomen uh, bearing uh, cicadas. And it's clearly something which this manipulation is really working and, and it's to the benefit of fungus. Um, yeah. So That that infection, when they pick up that canidial infection, it, it infects the next cicada. And instead of producing a plug, they produce those spores that live in the soil and wait to infect the next generation. So it's they have to infect sort of two cicadas successfully to be able to make it to that next waiting game for 17 years until more cicadas emerge. Um, so it's a very complicated lifestyle, but it works really well for this fungus. And if you're somewhere where cicadas are emerging... It's usually pretty easy to find uh, infected individuals. And we, in fact, uh, just uh, earlier this month drove down to um, southeastern West Virginia where there was an emergence. And if you flip over enough cicadas, you will find it
0: very yeah. cool <laughs> yeah. i also yeah. like that this is the second kind of fungus causing zombification in insects that we've talked about while we've had yeah. you on the show so yeah. <laughs> fun very very they're very terrifying, they're yeah. terrifying. Um, but i mean there's there's
3: there's different ways there's different ways that um different critters can take control <laughs> of hosts like mm-hmm. a lot of parasitoid wasps they just um they uh, make it so that their host is paralyzed, but they are partially paralyzed, and they just amp up the anger and well, the aggression to eleven. So mm-hmm. you have this situation where you have this caterpillar perched on top of the pupa, and mm-hmm. it just tries to smack anything that comes along with it with its head. Love it. Love yeah. it. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, you can so you it's...
3: can even like if you if you have like this. Um, tray of them, which is what we raised uh, in my master's degree, mm-hmm. and you just tap the top of the tray, like they will start like swaying in unison and banging their heads into another, and it's just that's amazing, incredible.
1: It's fun for me because since there's so little known about this fungus and some of the details about it are assumed or just have not been looked at directly, yeah. I could take a, a very straightforward microscope sample and be looking at the first example of this stage or, oh, or yeah. things like that. So um, it's it's been really uh, rewarding to to sort of drop into this Wild West sort of system. And I think there's we're going to be able to uncover a lot of things. And there are a lot of really cool threads, like the manipulation of the uh, sexual behavior or um, the production of these amphetamines, which we have not fully worked out. We don't know the pathways are present. I was really careful when I was describing it to say that the amphetamines are there but we don't necessarily have proof that the fungus alone is producing them yet so uh these are uh the kinds of open questions that you know if you're working on fungi you can uh you you can try to unravel uh which is really cool
0: incredibly cool yeah um Yeah, so it looks like we've been talking for about an hour. I know we could keep going because there's so much good stuff here to talk about. Um, But if you like what you heard and you'd like to know more, you can follow Brian on... You have at least a Twitter, right? Do you have other social media things?
1: Yep. No, I just have a Twitter. it gets me into enough trouble (laughs) (laughs) Um, so brian's
0: twitter handle is down in the description and um also nature check follows his twitter account so you can see things from brian on twitter um if you'd like to learn more about all kinds of cool fungal and uh fungal insect interaction type things um yeah we have been a nature chat i hope you enjoyed any last thoughts
1: thank you so much this has been a lot of fun yeah. You yeah. It's visit always, Gary again.
3: <laughs> it's always a pleasure to, it's always a pleasure to have you on. And I'm sure that whenever we figure out what the hell's going on with that river, uh, uh, we will, we will be back on, on the way through. And I am sure that, um, Gary will, uh, get himself into yet another situation <laughs> no again. knowing them with
0: a lot of complicated stories so perhaps That's, we'll yeah. see gary again yeah but yeah thank you so much brian for being on the show and for talking to us about stuff and uh we will see everyone uh either next time we play or in another nature chat bye
2: bye, bye.